0: All right. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you this morning. My name is Josh. I'm the campus pastor. And for all of you watching online, great to have you with us this morning. Uh, real quick, before we jump into our teaching this morning, we would love to have you guys after the service take a look at that space that we're investing in, and for our kids' space and our worship space, take a uh, walk through. Write prayers. Write verses on those the brick part. And it'll be cool once we wrap it with sheetrock. Those prayers will still be there for for years and years to come. All right, I want um, you to think real quickly about someone that you admire. Think of someone that you admire. Like man, that person that person's awesome in this area. Man, I wish I was like that person in this area. Okay. So maybe this person excels in their career, or maybe they have a healthy rhythm of home life. Maybe they take care of their bodies really well. Maybe they're really educated, they're really spiritual, they have a strong prayer life. You know, there's something about that person that kind of sets them apart from other people, at least in your mind. And I don't know about you, but but for people I admire, often I assume that these people just naturally have these skills or these abilities or these circumstances that results in them being admirable, right? Oh, she's just got good genes, or, you know, he just came from money, or, uh, you know, they they have their grandparents down the road, or whatever the circumstances is, often we attribute some external factor to their perceived success. But, you know, social scientists and neuroscientists increasingly have discovered that genes or temperament have a lot less to do with achievement than we give them credit for. And it's really the daily patterns or habits that we form are the things that cause people to succeed. Um, You might have read Charles Duhigg's book, The Power of Habit, or James Clear's book, Atomic Habits. Those are really interesting summaries of the recent findings on the importance of habit. Now, Duhigg and Clear, they're focusing on external things like business success and physical fitness. But the Bible tells us that our patterns and our habits are vital for us to experience a revived soul. It's not circumstances, but rather daily rhythms that result in our hearts and our lives having joy and be having peace, and having life. Many of us, over the past 15 months, have just felt like our souls are thin. Well, this series, which we're in week four of six weeks, we're looking through the Psalms to discover how we can revive our souls, how we can have fresh, rejuvenated, strong souls. And this is important for our personal, professional, and physical lives, but foundationally, it's you, all those are unimportant. All those are side, tertiary aspects if your soul isn't strong. So we're going to look at Psalm 19. We're going to look at three habits for a revived soul out of Psalm 19. And before we do that, I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump right in. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we want to have a soul filled up with life. We want to have a soul that pours forth joy. And Lord, in your word, Psalm 19, you've given us some habits to develop. As we look at your word, give us a a push and a pull and an encouragement to begin these habits or to go deeper in these habits so that we could have a revived soul, not just for our own life, but for our family, our community, and ultimately for the world. So Lord, we love you. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, uh, Matt read the beginning of our time this morning, verse 1 through 6 of Psalm 19. And Psalm 19 illustrates the theological concept of progressive revelation. What this means is throughout the course of time, God has continually revealed himself in broader and deeper ways. And the first way that he's revealed himself, we call general revelation, is in nature. The scripture says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. What this means is that God's glory, his ingenuity, and his majesty is seen within the created order. So, this past week, I was in uh, Petites, and we were going to pick up some flowers and uh, some rose bushes for our house. And I was walking by, and most of the roses hadn't hadn't bloomed yet, but I walked by, there was this one rose bush that had this pink, white, and purple bloom on it. And I was struck. Like, I like, I mean, it was incredibly beautiful. So I just like stopped and kind of looked at it and took a picture of it, sent it to Deborah. And I am not a naturally sentimental guy. But there's something about the beauty uh, and the complexity of this flower that hit me to the core. You know, God's glory, His beauty, is not seen in the creation, but magnified through the creation. We know that if you go into someone's house... And it's a beautifully uh, designed house. Maybe there's an old uh, table that's been restored. You're going to say, well, that's a beautiful table. Hey, who built this table? Who built this house? It's the same for the natural world. When we see beauty, the flowers, the birds, the natural world, our hearts should appreciate it and think, man, this is amazing. But it shouldn't end there. We should think of how amazing the designer of that, the creator, the ingenuity that came into designing a rose. Our hearts should go there. You know, the Bible tells us that unless we purposely suppress the truth, that's actually where our hearts will go. We and we know this just in everyday life. If we know that the designer of a tool is more. Complicated and smarter and more unique than the tool itself. Same with God. The, ba- the ma- beauty, the majesty, and the complexity show us that the Creator is even more beautiful, even more majestic, and even more complicated. So, the first habit of a revived soul is joining with God's creation to declare His glory and we join with God's creation a number of ways one way is we thank God for the beauty of nature and the natural world we we steward God's resources in a God-honoring way you know God as the creator of the world he is for his creation you know just like an artist wants Uh, the person he gives his or her artwork to, to take good care of this artwork. Same with us. We are to steward the natural resources that God has given us so that we can still have the environment with which to go, wow, this is amazing and God is even more amazing. So we join with creation in thanking God for the power and beauty of humans. You know there is a god honoring way to watch Shane Bieber strike out the side, right? There's something about seeing a Cleveland Indians baseball pitcher, you know, the the way he throws and can twist his fingers and his hands so that the, this liquid of the air, it spins around the ball and actually pushes it in a different direction. And there's these, at the, this batter at the peak of his physical ability is unable to hit it with a stick. And then we sit back and go, this is really fun to watch. But there's something about uh, uh, observing a beautiful Person, a beautiful baby. My neighbor just had a baby two days ago. This little baby. There's something about humanity that should draw our hearts and our minds up to the creator of humanity. And you know, when we join with the creation by doing our best in our workplaces, in our homemaking, and in our studies, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above His handiwork. But, all is not well. You know, if you've spent much time in nature, you'll realize that at the same time you can see incredible beauty, you also see incredible decay and death. You see these majestic uh, animals, and then these majestic animals rip apart and eat other majestic animals. Well, the Bible tells us that sin entered the world and we see the majesty and the glory in the created order. We also see death and decay. So what are we supposed to do? As we look at God's general revelation, as he's showing us himself in the natural world, how are we to respond? Well, there are certain perspectives that believe that our problem is actually Modern technology and the modern way of life. That if we could just go back to a previous era, get closer to nature, that'll actually uh, solve some of these tensions that we experience. You know, the problem is not so much sin, it's our distance from nature. Well, Annie Dillard, she's a famous American author and poet, was one such person. She wanted to get back to nature to kind of recapture and restore her soul. And she did this by spending a year next to a small Virginia creek called Tinker Creek. And she writes this in her book, The Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, about her year next to that creek. She says this, I had thought to live by the side of the creek in order to shape my life to its free flow. But I seem to have reached a point where I must draw the line. It looks as though the creek is not buoying me up, but dragging me down. Look, the cock robin may die the most gruesome of slow deaths, and nature is no less pleased. The sun comes up, the creek rolls on, the survivors still sing. I cannot feel that way about your death, nor you about mine, nor either of us about the robins. She goes on to say, Either this world, Mother Nature, is my mother, either she is a monster, or I am a freak. Consider the former. The world is a monster. There is not a people in the world that behave as badly as praying mantises. But wait, you say. There's no right or wrong in nature. Right and wrong is a human concept. Precisely. We are moral creatures in an amoral world. A monstrous world running on chance and death, careening blindly from nowhere to nowhere, somehow produced wonderful us. This world runs on chance and death and power, but I cherish life and the rights of the weak versus the strong. I crawled out of a sea of amino acids, and now I must whirl around and shake my fist at that sea and cry, Shame. See, Annie Dillard experienced what we all experience in nature this admixture of beauty and violence all put together. So we join with God's creation in declaring God's glory, but at the same time, creation is an insufficient means to know God. See, the book of Romans says that nature is enough to know there is a God, but not to know God. See, God wants us to know Him not merely as a force. He wants us to know Him as Father. And that's why He gave us the law. See, the second habit for a revived soul is knowing God's law. And we read that as responsive reading in verses 7 through 11. And we read that the law of God, the divine law, is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. And what does the, uh, the law of God do? It revives the soul, it makes wise the simple, it rejoices the heart, it enlightens the eyes, it endures forever. And it's righteous altogether. See, the psalmist is talking about God's moral law, as we see in the first five books of the Bible. And God gave us this law for two reasons, and they're related. One is so that we would know the heart of God, and secondly, so that we would know how to live. But I will say, (laughs) saying that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul we don't talk about laws reviving our souls very often. Am I right? Right? See, as Christians, I'm sorry, as Americans who are also Christians, we don't like laws. You know, I've met some of you who live in Brunswick Hills. You kind of walk with a little swagger about the freedom of Brunswick Hills, right? We can burn whatever we want, whenever we want. And, you know, some guy was like, I can shoot out back my house. I can't do that in Brunswick City, right? Some of you relished the freedom of the Wild West of Brunswick Hills versus the, you know, the, 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 the uh, uh, control of Brunswick City and, and, God forbid, behind the Iron Curtain of Cuyahoga County, right? Where Deborah and I live. We as Americans, we don't like laws. Charles Taylor, he's an influential philosopher, he says that the highest value within Western society, or American society, is that of individual freedom. But he says it specifically it's called negative freedom. And negative freedom says this. Someone should be free to do whatever they want as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. Okay, right? Like, and I think just on face value we go, yeah, yeah, yeah every, someone should be free to do what they want as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. Well, if this phrase is true, which it just seems, it seems like at face value to be true, how can we speak of the law like the psalmist speaks? It revives the soul that's perfect. Oh, it's sweeter than honey. How are we supposed to reconcile these two? Well, I want to I provide two counterexamples to show you, try to show you, that just laws... Are really, really, really important. Okay. First counterexample I want to provide is uh, that of a lo- lawless society. You know, uh, you know. Yes, it's, it's irritating to have to pay this or that fine and, and, and not be able to do this or that activity, and we can kind of rail at at the too many laws until we're in a in an environment that's lawless. Right, One of the key markers of a failed state is the lack of laws or that the laws they have aren't enforced. And I experienced this personally. So I taught English in Thailand for a summer in graduate school. And we, on the weekends, we'd go travel around. Um, and uh, one weekend we, we went to Laos. And throughout the entire summer, almost to the man, every western male we met were there was there for sex tourism like i'm trying to think of one that wasn't we might have met one so we were in line uh to get a visa to go to laos for the day and uh, a man from the uk came up and started talking to us and he was talking about man i love this part of the country i moved here or this part of the world i moved here and." Man, Laos is awesome. I love it. I'm like, okay, what's, what's you know, why, do, why is it so great? And he started telling me and my friend, who's part of the school, about how underaged girls were so available in the brothels in Laos because they don't have any laws. So, like, you know, me and my buddy, we, like, flipped our lids. Um, but that stuck with me. And made me realize that, okay, I might not like certain laws, but I want just laws. Because if you look at human history, every time there are no laws, or the laws that are in place are unenforced, women and children suffer. Almost exclusively. So we actually want good laws. We want just laws. Let me give you the second counter-example of why laws are good. It's a counter-example of addiction. You know, so if someone is free to do what they want, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, what do we say about addiction? You know, if someone is taking drugs, uh, right, they're doing it on their, for their own choice, right? It's their own decision, right? 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 <laughs> but you know, if you struggle with addiction, and I know I have friends that struggle, or even struggle now, that if that person is struggling, it, it's not, uh, suffering is never done to the exclusion of anyone else. If you're suffering, it, suffering bleeds into your relationships, your spouse, your children, your, your uh, community. Right? If we should be free to do whatever we want, then we should just say, hey, you can be uh, addicted to whatever you want at any point. But we know that that becomes a cancer to our society, to our families, and to our world. And even maybe you have a grown child who's not even living in your home. You might not even live in your state. But if that grown child is suffering from addiction, it is present every day in your home. You see, lawless societies and addiction, those are two of many counterexamples to show us that law is good. Now, there are unjust laws. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, he was uh, uh, a thousand years ago a, a theologian that says an unjust law is actually no law at all. But we're talking about just laws, true, right laws. Those are good. And we see that the great lawgiver, the perfect, spotless, loving lawgiver, has given us a law that is perfect that is sure, it is right, it is pure, it is clean, and it is true. Because the divine law is an outflowing of the heart of God. See, the second habit for a revived soul is knowing God's law. But this sort of knowing that we see here in Psalm 19, it's not the type of knowing that we uh, assume. You know, I think it's okay to realize, like if you've ever been in a college dorm you know that like, like, like there's some dorm rules that are going to be good, right? Because if there's no dorm rules, it'd be about two weeks and it'd be like a biohazard waste zone in a college dorm, right? You need some house rules. But how do we move from appreciating house rules to seeing the law of God as something we love? I love, it revives my soul. Well look with me at verse ten, because the law of God we know differently than what we would know a math equation, or we would know our HOA regulations. Look with me at me, verse ten. The law talking about the law of God. It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. What the, when the Bible talks about knowing and that we are to know the law and it revives our soul, it's not talking about a mental ascent. It's talking about a whole body experience. So I can know that honey is sweet, but until I taste honey, I don't truly know. Right, my... um. My wife, her mom, uh, immigrated from Korea when she, her mom was 10. So we love Korean food. Seoul Garden in Parma, if you want to make the drive, is like the best place. We were there um, last night. So you, I can describe the taste of kimchi. Is anyone, do you know what kimchi, what kimchi is? It's not a big Brunswick thing. Yeah, but, um, if uh, you can describe the taste of kimchi, you will have, you have no idea what it tastes like until you experience it. And the first time you taste kimchi, it's like a fermented it's like fermented cabbage that's spicy with fish sauce. It's it's really good. Trust me, you'll like it. Didn't describe it well there, but it's really good. Um, But what happens when you taste kimchi, your brain goes, What is going on in my mouth? And it, you're, you start to have new categories. And you, every time, dude, like, you, we, we, you know, we have it on our homes, so we introduce people to it. They go, what is this? And it takes them about 10 seconds. And then you, you, you pair it with rice. And then they go, this, this is pretty good. Let me, let me have a little bit more of that. And they'll have a little bit. And the next time they come, they'll go, hey, you got any more of that kimchi thing? Like, that was really good. When we experience the law of God, it is just like that. The Bible tells us we want to go our own way. We want to be lawless. We don't go, go into any... Uh, we just want to do what we want to do. But God's given us the law. And when we begin to walk through the law, begin to not just know, but experience the law, it's like that first taste of kimchi going, ah, I don't know about this. But as you walk it through, you begin to experience a change. So that you be, actually begin to hunger for The law, you actually hunger for the obedience of God. It's just it's just like when you're driving to the beach and you begin to smell the salt water. Like salt water doesn't really smell good, but you know what's coming. The law of God is just that. It is saying, walk in this way. And something good is coming. You will be better off in every way of your life if you walk along the path of the law. The law is not a a barricade in the path to our joy. It is a bridge to the promised land. But we have to trust in God as we walk it step by step. All right, so the first uh, habit of a Uh, for a revived soul, is joining with God's creation. The second is knowing God's law. The third is receiving God's acquittal. Look at me at verse 12 of uh, Psalm 19. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. So in verse 12, uh, it's interesting that this uh, word, uh, or these words, declare me innocent, it's actually one word. It's the word that, that, uh, used by judges that they would pronounce in an acquittal, in a, a, a legal proceeding. You are not guilty of this crime. But the psalmist is clearly guilty. Right? He says, who can discern his errors? Like, I've done a lot of bad things, and I don't even remember the things that I've done. But at the same time, he's asking God to declare him innocent of those wrongs. Right? He's asking the judge, God the judge, for freedom and innocence. Right? You and I, we have hidden sins, and we're in need of acquittal. Lord, Lord, Lord Acquit me of these sins. I don't want to pay for the consequences here's the problem. It's a great tension throughout the Old Testament. It's this. <clears throat> the law is, is intended for us to know God. It's perfect. It's pure. It's clean. And in order for the law to be a law, it has to be punishable. Like if we break the law, we should be punished. And God is a perfect Judge the, the, the law is perfect, so there's, there's no loopholes that, that should be in the law for us to get out of the way we should live and act and think and, and believe. And, the, and, and God the judge is a perfect judge, so he is going to uh, uh, judge perfectly and rightly. So we are guilty, and God is a righteous judge. The law is perfect, and we have broken it, And God is a perfect judge where he will mete out justice always. God wants to be our father, but he must also be a perfect judge. He loves us and wants to spend eternity with us. But the punishment for sin is eternity apart from him. So what is the father who is also the judge supposed to do? Does he become A kind father that acquits us of wrongdoing and says, hey, we'll just get you off the hook, then he'd be a terrible judge. He would be a lawbreaker. But if he's a perfect judge and he uh, commands the sentence and we are eternally guilty, how could he also be our father to cast us away forever? And we might go, ah, there's some way, you know, like... It's not that bad, right? He'll figure something out. No big deal. Well, let me paint a scenario. So there's a lot of uh, uh, like kids' school programs at the end of the year. So uh, Judah's got one on Friday we're going to go to at 7 o'clock. So imagine you're uh, getting out of a, a school assembly, and you pile your kids into your minivan, and you go get some uh, um, ice cream cones, and you're heading home, and you're at a stoplight. And it's about 30, 9 o'clock, it's getting dark. You know, and then you see a car coming from the other side. And it's looking like it's going a little fast. You're just kind of, okay, maybe it's trying to beat the red light. And then it speeds up and it starts to careen. And it co- crosses over traffic and comes right at your minivan, smacks it. Glass everywhere. Fortunately, no one died, but your two-year-old is glass cutter up. And she's got all these nicks. She's bleeding. And now your four-year-old, after this accident, does, it has a phobia of entering into a car. So imagine you get out of this van, and, and the person who ran into you stumbles out of their car, and clearly they're drunk. And the police come. And they do an assessment. They put handcuffs on this man, because his blood alcohol content is twice the limit. And they look at his chart and said, man, this is the third time you've done this. You're going away for good. So you go home, you clean up the mess, you deal with insurance agencies. And then you get a call from the county courthouse saying, hey, you need to appear at this date. This is the sentencing, we need you to testify And you go there, you share what what you've done. You tell the judge, I was just sitting there at the red light with my kids with their ice cream cones. He careened over, he hit us. He was obviously twice uh, uh, over the butt alcohol content. So you sit down and the judge reads off all the accusations. The defendant goes, well, I don't know. I just kind of like to drink. And, and, And so here's the judge. What does he do? Well, clearly this is a guilty party and you're in uh you're in the audience you're ready to hear what what's going to happen to this man what if the judge goes oh when the when the plaintiff comes in oh, the, the defendant comes in goes oh tom hey i know you we're members of the country club together our kids play baseball hey man how you doing or what if he says oh hey uh you know, we're we're members of the same ethnic group i You know, I I have a connection with you. And after all the evidence is laid out, what if the judge says, my verdict is this, he's innocent because we are a part of the same country club. Or he's innocent because we have the same ethnicity. You would say, whoa, no, 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 no. A crime has been committed. A law has been broken. He needs to go to jail. You see, we're the defendant. We have broken God's law. There are consequences for our law breaking. And the judge is a perfect judge, but he's also our father. So what is the father to do? Send us away forever? Or does he become evil? We need mercy and justice. We need grace, but we also must have truth. That's why John 1, 16 says this. For his full, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So what God did is he declared us fully guilty of all of our sins. Worthy of eternal punishment. But as a judge, he was just. He fulfilled the law. But as a father, he came down off the judge's seat and said, I will take your place. He gave his one and only son, Jesus, to die on the cross to pay for our sins. But then he rose Jesus from the grave so that we don't have to fear God. There will will not always be this grudge of, you cost me my son. He said, no, no, I rose him from the grave. And now you can be in my family, no strings attached. That is the gospel message. That was what God has done through Jesus Christ. And that's why we can look at the law and say, God, thank you for the law. You see, when we understand the gospel message, the law becomes sweeter to us we realize that the law is not to condemn us, it's to guide us into truth so that we can have a revived heart, a revived soul. The, the, the pathway of the law, it is not a barricade, it is a bridge to the promised land because it comes from the heart of God, a heart that would give anything for you. And the gospel message, when we fully understand it, the result is also that at the heavens they declare the glory of God that much more loudly, right? The God that would create the beauty and intricacy of this little rose that could just be cut, put in a vase for two weeks, and thrown away. How much more beautiful could God make us? How much more beautiful could he make our marriages, our communities, our friend group, our family, the world, if we would fully surrender to his law and live according to the path that he's given us? When we truly understand the gospel, the heavens proclaim louder and the law becomes so much sweeter. And maybe you are here and you've never received the acquittal of God. I want to let you know today that it is offered to you free of charge through Jesus Christ. All we have to do, all you have to do is say, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross and rose again for my life. I want to receive your forgiveness. I want to receive the acquittal of God come into my life. My life is yours. And if we do that, you become new in Christ. You've been given a brand new life, a brand new record. And you can now live in the goodness that God's given you by following along in his law. And I, but I also think there are many of us here who feel like you got off on a technicality. You feel like, uh, maybe I'm not condemned forever, but I don't know if God really loves me. Like, look at all this stuff I've done. Look at all this, like how... How could God truly accept me for who I am? Well, the good news is, as a perfect judge, he knows the law perfectly. As an omniscient God, he's seen your life completely. But Jesus is so perfect. He is so pure. He is so right. He fulfilled the law completely. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, God sees us through Christ and we get his record. God is not coming for you as a judge, but he will come for you as a father. What that means is when we begin to stray, he's coming after you to love you, not to throw you away, not to cast you away, but to bring you in. And once we believe that, that unlocks our ability to begin to bring our family and our community into the orbit of Jesus. Where our hearts and our souls have life, and that is how we receive a revived soul, remembering and trusting in the work of Jesus. Well, what's the summary? What's, what's the outworking of all this? It's verse fourteen. It says, "All right, God, because you've done this, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts of or the meditation of my heart." Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and our Redeemer. We internalize these truths, and they, want, they come out in every area of our lives. You know, we've got um, each week, we uh, put together these cards that has one of the verses from the psalm. We've got a whole stack in the back. I encourage you to grab it, tape it on your office door or the fridge at home, and be reminded of all that God's done for you. And now you get the privilege of responding in love to him. Well, I'm going to pray and our worship team will come up for one more song. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and for your work. Thank you so much that you have done it. Well, you have fulfilled justice and you have fulfilled the law of love. Lord, thank you that we um, can receive your acquittal, that we can be given new life. Lord, we thank you so much for your law, that it, it's a bridge to the promised land. It's the bridge to where we want to go. It's not a barrier for us. And Lord, we thank you for your beautiful creation. Lord, allow us this week, as we see the glory uh, reflected in your creation, Lord, our minds and our hearts ascend to you in thanksgiving and praise. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.